You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. We talk a lot about the things that make true crime attractive to its fans. For some people, it is the psychology. For some people, it's the human interest. But I think for each and every person that loves true crime, it really comes down to at least one common denominator. Each and every one of us love to listen to a good story. This week, I'm going to serve you up a story that covers a whole lot of years and a whole lot of people. Imagine living your life not knowing that your father or your husband was a killer. The children and spouses in this story found out exactly that after the man that they knew passed away. They found out that on a different continent, their father had not only killed his parents, but he had served time and then escaped from prison. Does that sound like a story that you may want to listen to? Well, you've come to the right place. My name is Lance, and welcome to episode 98 of Gone But Never Forgotten. Murderer escapes and creates a whole new life. The story of Leslie Arnold. Leslie Arnold was born on August 28th of 1942 to Opal and Leslie Arnold. Our story this week begins back in 1958 in Omaha, Nebraska, when Leslie is 16 years old and going through the familiar pains that go along with being a teenager. He was stuck in that age of knowing better than his parents, but obviously not quite wielding enough power to utilize all of that knowledge that he had acquired in his 16 years. One way that Leslie knew that he was wiser than his parents, specifically his mom, was in terms of who he could and should date and who he should not date. This was something that Leslie and his mom differed greatly on. I think that most of us have had a similar experience at some point in our lives. Leslie had been dating a girl named Crystal for about a year, and the fact was that Leslie's mom, Opal, did not like Crystal at all. Leslie would later say that it was Crystal's entire family that his mom looked down upon because of their blue-collar and lower-class nature. Leslie said that his mom saw them as, quote, white trash. On September 27th of 1958, Leslie would ask his parents if he could borrow the family car so that he and Crystal could go to the drive-in theater. 
His mom's dislike towards Crystal would come up again in an argument, and Leslie said that he got an idea inside of his head. He wanted to show his mom that he meant business, and that he was a man who could make his own life decisions. He went into his parents' room, and he picked up their twenty-two caliber rifle. Leslie would say that he only intended to scare his mom, but then she started to laugh at him. She looked him straight in the face, he says, and asked him, quote, What are you going to do, shoot me? Unquote. And that is when Leslie shot his mother the first time. Leslie would then say that he stood over top of his mom and fired five more bullets into her chest. He said that he could never explain it. He saw that his mom was in pain, and he knew that he didn't want her to hurt anymore, but he said that he just kept shooting. That was the moment when his father, Leslie Arnold, would come through the door and see his wife's lifeless body on the floor. Dad immediately turned and came at Leslie, with Leslie managing to duck one wild swing, and then he shot his father six times as well, killing him on the floor right beside his wife. Leslie would later say that he curled up on the couch at first and cried, unable to comprehend what he had done and what he was going to do next. However, within an hour, he said that he hatched his plan to move forward. The first thing that he did was hatch a plan to take care of his younger, 11-year-old brother. He immediately told family that his parents had to leave town to go and look for his senile grandfather who had wandered off in Wyoming. He made arrangements in their stead for his brother to stay with other family members who lived close by. Then, Leslie carried on with his plans for the evening. He picked up Crystal in the family car, and they went to the drive-in to see the movie The Undead. Leslie would later say that the evening was dreadful because of his guilty conscience over what he had done. The following night, alone at home and under the cover of night, obviously a lot of that guilty conscience had disappeared, as Leslie dragged both of his parents' bodies out to the backyard and he dug shallow graves and buried them. He then settled into a routine of life for the next two weeks. Leslie would go down to his father's business every day and open it up to make it appear like he had been there. And he also was still attending school, acting as though nothing at all was amiss. About a week into his ruse, however, Leslie came home from school to a shock. The grandfather that he had told everyone was senile and had got lost in Wyoming was at his house. Leslie tried to talk his way out of everything, but family started to realize that he was lying and that something much more sinister was at play. Five days after his grandfather arrived, his family would finally go to the police. Leslie was taken into the police station for questioning on October 11th, and he admitted to his crimes. There is a famous newspaper black-and-white photo of Leslie showing police where he had buried the bodies of his parents in the backyard, which I will show on the YouTube video for the case. A couple of months later, 
Leslie pled guilty to two counts of second-degree murder, and his sentence would be life in the Nebraska State Penitentiary. The plus side for Leslie was that at the time he faced 10 years in prison because the state's pardon board often commuted life sentences to a set number of years for parole eligibility. That is what makes the next part of the story so interesting. First, I do want to add to the relationship that we know of between Leslie and his parents. Leslie was a known member of the school marching band, the school dance band, and the ROTC band at his high school, and he was a good student. However, people said that he was very high-strung and that he had deep-rooted anger issues that stemmed from a lot of resentment towards his mom. Leslie would later tell psychiatrists that his mom was very domineering and that he felt like he couldn't do anything to make her happy. His feelings about the way that she treated him were corroborated by others as well. It's also been rumored that Opal may have been admitted a few times to the hospital for mental health issues of her own, and that may have been a part of the problem that existed and grew between her and Leslie. Of course, all of this is to say that there was no reason here for murder, of course. I just wanted to finish off that part of Leslie and his story. In prison, by all accounts, Leslie was a model prisoner. He was found by prison officials to be very eager to work, and it was said that even in prison, he had continued to pursue his love for music and his love for the saxophone by playing in the prison band. Everyone that worked at the prison assumed that Leslie would make parole at his first chance because of his behavior and because he had com committed his crimes at such a young age. Everyone believed that Leslie would be one of those cases where he would serve his time and still make something of himself once he was back on the outside. They would wind up being more correct than they could have ever possibly known. Even though all signs pointed to the fact that Leslie was nearing the end of his prison sentence, it seemed that in 1967, he decided that the end of his time behind bars was not coming fast enough for his liking. It was then that he started to hatch a plan with fellow convicted killer James Harding. The two made a plan to break out of the trusty dorm, which was the name for a secured facility on the grounds of the prison that was used for lower-risk inmates who were getting closer to their parole release dates. The two inmates convinced another recent parolee to toss a tube with saw blades and rubber masks over and into the prison yard where the two men retrieved that package. They then hid the saws and masks inside of the room where the band practiced music, and they sawed through the bars that were over a window and held everything in place with chewing gum. Then came the night of the jailbreak, July 14, 1967. The two men used rubber masks and made it appear that they were in their beds. They then made their way to the music room. Once there, the two inmates jumped out the window, climbed over the barbed wire fence, and ran into a clearing where the other recent parolee was in wait with a car. 
the three then drove to Omaha, where a childhood friend of Leslie was there to give them clothes, money, and tickets for a 3 a.m. bus that was headed for Chicago. Leslie and James got such a clear break that they were already on that bus and halfway to Chicago by the time that the prison guards realized that they were missing. James, who was recaptured less than a year after their escape, said that the last time that he saw Leslie was just a few days after they landed in Chicago. The two men had never seen one another again. James said that Leslie had told him that he had already found a job working as a cook in a restaurant called David's in a Polish neighborhood, and that he had already found a woman to hook up for, for cover. That woman was Jean Bouvia. According to a July 15, 1967 article in the Lincoln Journal Star, there was a massive search undertaken to try and find these two men. There were land and air searches done in four states using helicopters, fixed-winged aircraft, soldiers, police sheriffs, and police officers. It was said by many that their escape was the cleanest that they had ever seen, and in point of fact, it is to this day still the last successful escape done from the Nebraska State Penitentiary. Leslie would move in with Jean Bouvia and her four daughters. He assumed an entirely new name and persona as he became John Damon. John Damon was a traveling salesman, and as such, he and his new family would move. The family would first move to Cincinnati, and then later they would move to Miami. One of his stepdaughters said in an interview with Omaha.com that she remembers when John Damon first came home with her mom. She said that John was a nice man and quiet. She said that he didn't eat very much, and he didn't ever talk about himself. John and Jean didn't date for very long as John moved in and they got married in a civil ceremony on November 25th of 1967, only 134 days after Leslie, or John, had escaped from prison. John was 25 years old now and Jean was 34. She was an attractive woman who had pizzazz and style. She was a good catch for a young man who was just trying to disappear into an entirely new life. With their union, Jean instantly saw improvement and stability in the lives of her children, who were 14, 12, 9, and 5 at the time. The family moved from a rougher neighborhood to a middle-class neighborhood, and her daughters had a male role model within their lives. In return, the man that she married went from being Leslie, an escaped prison convict, to John, a married father to four daughters. Even the daughters remember thinking that John must have been crazy to take on such a family. The family would come to find out that John Damon had grown up in an orphanage. John would obtain fake identification in the form of a forged Illinois birth certificate, that allowed him to forevermore become the new man that he had quickly built upon escape from prison. 
Jin's daughters remember a man who didn't socialize a lot, but would play gigs from time to time with his beloved saxophone, which he had never stopped playing. Then came the change from a cook at David's to that aforementioned salesman. John found his way into being a middleman between distributors and potential customers. He sold many things over the years that included linens, chemicals and supplies, musical instruments, and even vending machines at one point. The girls remember a man who always was dressed in a suit and would even be away for a week at a time. He worked hard and he made a lot of money. His work was likely why the family all moved out to Cincinnati in 1969. The family moved into a beautiful two-level home that had a large yard and a piano in the dining room. The family seemed to be doing very well for themselves. The sisters remember the awe of moving into their first house. They saw John as the savior because he moved them to that life from the wrong side of the tracks in Chicago. The girls seem to have very fond memories of John Damon. They said that he was the only man that they had ever called dad in their lives. They said that he instilled a strong love for music in all of them, and a particular love for jazz music. One of the daughters, Deb, says that she remembers John teaching her how to play piano in that house. One interesting fact that came out is that the girls all said that John was loving and caring, but he was also strict and unforgiving, which of course is interesting as that is something that John, as Leslie, had said about his own mother. He said that her strict and unforgiving ways were what drove him crazy. So, in the end, he seemed to have developed a parenting style that was similar to his own mother's. Some combination of that and going through the prison system where things were regimented obviously made John the man that he was. The family would again move in 1971, and it was a strange set of circumstances that led to that. One of Jean's daughters, Kelly, remembers that Jean and John went to the Bahamas for a vacation, and that when they stopped in Miami, Jean never returned to Cincinnati at all, and instead stayed in Miami to find a new home for the family. Meanwhile, John actually came back to Cincinnati with the girls to prepare for the move. Not too long after that move, though, the girls remember John getting restless and that he wanted to move again, this time to Costa Rica. He said at the time that he wanted to move there because the cost of living was so low and it would be a positive change for the family. The family, though, said that they wanted to stay in Miami and that they didn't want to move anymore. And subsequently, it seems that John moved on slowly at first, but then to the point that he wasn't around much at all. Serving as his own lawyer on July 27th of 1977, John Damon filed for divorce, essentially 10 years after he had escaped from prison, almost to the very day. Jean did not even respond to the divorce filing, and the divorce was granted in February of 1978. The divorce was not amicable, however. 
The two agreed to split family assets outside of the courts, but she felt that in the end, John had not been fair to her or to the girls. In response to that, Jean smashed John's prized saxophone before she mailed it out to him. She would say that her husband was a great provider, but a lousy husband. The girls have said that for years, John still came to family functions like graduations, and then in 1992, the girls say that he asked them all to get together with him. He told them then that he was going to leave the country. He had a daughter of his own by this time, and this meeting seems to have been the last one between he and his stepdaughters after years of being there. Now he was just gone. Seemingly starting a new life for the third time, and disconnecting again from everything that attached him to the previous life. A lot of the third life that Leslie, or John, lived comes directly from a story that was done in the Omaha World Herald by Henry J. Cordes on April 30th of 2023. John's son from this third part of his life agreed to share facts about him on the condition that his name, his sister's name, his mom's name, the town name that they all lived in, and any other pertinent information not be identified. I am going to honor those wishes here, of course. A few years after his divorce was finalized, John would start to date the woman that would become his second wife. She was a foreign exchange student that was living in Los Angeles at the time. The two would get married in 1983, and then in 1986, John became a biological father for the first time in his life, as his wife gave birth to a baby girl. His son would then be born in 1991, five years later. For a long time, the family lived in the area around Los Angeles. They lived in Long Beach, they lived in Torrance, and they lived in Glendale. John continued to work as a salesman. He had even incorporated his own business, which was called Demonico. Then, in 1992, things changed, and again seemingly out of nowhere, John told his family that they needed to leave the country. What John told his family was that after the Los Angeles riots, he felt that the country had changed, and that it was not a safe place to be or raise a family. With the benefit of hindsight and information, though, one has to wonder if this was like when he wanted to move to Costa Rica. I wonder if something spooked him, and he thought that someone had still followed his trail. His wife did not want to move at first, but she did eventually acquiesce, and the family prepared to move. His family now says in hindsight that this was not the only strange thing that he had done, as around the same time, John had a mole removed from his cheek that he had always had. That mole was mentioned on every FBI posting about Leslie Arnold. People wonder now if he knew that technology was advancing rapidly and that technology could certainly still track him down after all of the years that had gone by. The family first flew to New Zealand in 1992, and they lived there for five years, and then they finally moved one more time to Australia in 1997. 
His children remember him as being a loving and doting man who told them that they had profoundly changed his life. He said that he wanted the best for them, and they said that he was not overbearing on them at all. In fact, when they heard about how he had parented his stepdaughters after he passed away, they were shocked. They also said that he instilled in them, too, that passion, that same passion, and that same love for music. Interestingly, even though he told his children that he used to play the saxophone, they never saw him play the instrument, even after his son, too, started to play the saxophone. John told his family that he had grown up in a Chicago orphanage, and when they asked more questions... He simply said that his childhood had been a difficult time and he didn't want to revisit it. He said that he had no desire or need to learn anything about his birth parents. Looking back, his kids have said that they believe that they were raised on partial truths that would come up over time. For example, he had told them that he had previously worked as a dental technician. However, what he did not tell them is that he was a dental technician in prison. John would travel back and forth to the United States at various times for his work and travel to California on an extended business trip at the time of the 9-11 attacks. When he returned home from that trip to Australia, he didn't ever travel overseas again after that, and he did continue to do his sales work, but it was all over the phone. Not long after that, he started to deal with blood clots and complications pertaining to blood clots. He was diagnosed with deep vein thrombosis, and the blood clots would continue to cause problems for John until he died from them on August 6th of 2010. He would collapse at home on that day and pass away. The obituary for John Damon said that he was 69 years old, but Leslie was just days short of his 68th birthday. John's son was 19 years old at the time that his dad died, and he knew that he wanted to know more about his legacy and get answers to some of the questions that his own dad didn't seem to want or need. He even went to Chicago in 2018 and tried to find the orphanage that his father had spoken of. He took his dad's birth certificate to be looked at by the orphanage, and that was when he found out that the birth certificate was indeed a fake. At that point, he reached out to John's stepdaughters, and they too said that they had only known the orphanage story. Then in 2022, the son decided to get his DNA analyzed. In August, the son was very excited when he was alerted that there was a close match. However, he very quickly found out that he was not speaking with a close relative. He was in fact speaking with a deputy U.S. marshal from Omaha. Marshals would fly out to Australia and they would gather evidence and information on John Damon and then not long afterwards, they closed the case on the missing fugitive, William Leslie Arnold. All that is left now is what they jokingly refer to as their new dysfunctional family that's made up of John's stepdaughters and John's biological children, as well as John's first biological grandson. 
all of them now aware that their father was indeed a prison escapee extraordinaire named John Leslie Arnold, who killed his parents when he was only 16 years old, and not only a traveling salesman known as John Damon. And thus closes what I think is a very cool true crime story, one that shows a very interesting life from a prison escapee who got away with it and stayed away with it for the rest of his life. I hope that you goners out there enjoyed this story as much as I did. Come and let me know what you think over on socials and, of course, over on Patreon. And I will talk to you all again next week on another episode of Gone But Never Forgotten. Of course, don't forget to be better. See you next week.